We're gonna go for it. There we are, there we are. All right, we have spent three weeks in Daniel chapter one. We're gonna plow through the entire second chapter all today. So buckle up, we're gonna be here four or five hours. Uh, no, 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 I'll get you out. Hey, Daniel, when last, when last we left our hero, Daniel and his three friends have completed their three-year program of training, and they have entered the king's service. Now, what did they do for the king? They were part of a, a class of workers whose job it was to advise King Nebuchadnezzar on practical matters, but to do so through the lens of religious beliefs and superstitions. Essentially, it was their job to keep King Nebuchadnezzar out of supernatural trouble. Daniel 2 then tells the story of the first interaction between Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. It's a story that would have taken place almost the precise time that Daniel and his buddies graduated from their training and were promoted to the king's service. Now, did it happen a little bit before they actually officially got the promotion? Um, maybe. Did it happen a little bit after they officially got the promotion? Eh, maybe. Uh, maybe it happened right. Maybe this is why King Nebuchadnezzar was so uh, impressed with them, as we read at the end of chapter one. We really don't know, but somewhere right in that period. In any case, we can think of Daniel chapter two as the account of Daniel's first days at his new job. And as it happens, he arrives at basically the worst time possible to start a new job. Has anybody ever had a really, really bad day at work? No, of course not. I remember my dad telling the story um, of being on duty at the police station, uh, you know, when, when he worked late one night on patrol, discovering a place where public works had, <coughs> excuse me, <laughs> discovering a place where public works had, had dug a big ditch to work on some underground pipes and they had left the ditch open. There were barricades around it, but the barricades had fallen over. And so my dad got out of his squad car and put the barricades back up so that nobody would make a foolish mistake and trip and fall in the ditch. My dad made a foolish mistake and tripped and fell in the ditch. Uh, the ditch had water in the bottom of it. It was muddy. He got all he was down over his head. Somehow he was able to scramble out of the ditch, much to the delight of the two people down the block who were watching the whole thing happen. Uh, but he got out and he was muddy, he was dirty, he was wet. And so he drove back to the police station where he had an extra uniform in the locker room. He changed into his extra uniform but realized he didn't have an extra pair of socks. And so he rinsed out his socks in the sink in the, in the locker room at the police station, but he had no way to dry them. And this is where my dad's brilliant ingenuity took over. He thought, I'm gonna microwave my socks. <laughs> and so he put his socks in the microwave and a few seconds later they were on fire. And so uh, he opened the microwave door and he took the smoldering socks out of the microwave and turned around to see his watch commander walk into the room. <laughs> I would call that a bad day at work. <laughs> I've had bad days at work. My first week, I started here, I became your pastor in July of 2012. I started on Monday, July the 23rd. That was my first day in the office. On Wednesday, July the 25th, I got word that all of the uh, church's employees' payroll checks had bounced. That's a bad start to a new job. <laughs> We were in the process of figuring out the bank accounts and we had the money, they just weren't in the right place. So when our payroll service company made the, the debit, they said, yeah, there's no money there. Bad day at work. 
Daniel's first days at work weren't very good ones. His boss, the king, was in a bad mood. I want you to remember that Daniel's life challenge was to maintain righteousness while living in a kingdom of spiritual ruin. And that ruin was going to be a part of his life even when the king was in a good mood. But the king was not in a good mood when Daniel started his job. The king was in a bad mood. Why was the king in such a bad mood? Well, conquering the known world is hard work. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard to be the king when you're trying to maintain an empire. From secular history, we know this is about 602 or 603 BC. Nebuchadnezzar's armies were in the far reaches of his empire putting down rebellions. His treasurers were working hard to, to collect all the, the money, the taxes and the tribute money that were owed to them. People don't like to pay their taxes now. They sure didn't like to pay them in the ancient world. It was hard work running an empire. And Nebuchadnezzar was having a rough day in the office. And the Bible tells us that because of all this stress, well, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't coping very well. I want to read to you the very first verse from Daniel chapter 2. It says, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. How many people in the room are saying, I feel you, bro. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his mind was troubled and he could not sleep. We read on, I'm not going to read all of these verses. I'm going to kind of do more, just tell you the story today and leave it to you to go back and read it. But Nebuchadnezzar, it would seem, had a recurring nightmare that he believed was a message from the gods. And so he summoned all of his advisors. He didn't call Daniel. Daniel was brand new. But he called the other guys that were in that advisory role. And he asked them to interpret the meaning of the dream. But there was a problem. We don't know exactly the problem. Either Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember the dream, or maybe he just didn't want to say it out loud. But Nebuchadnezzar, being the king, said, here's what's going to happen. You guys are going to tell me the meaning of the dream. And they said, okay, what was the dream? And he said, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to tell me what dream I had. And then you're going to tell me what it means. And the wise men, of course, said, um, okay, joke's on us. Very funny. What do you actually want us to do? And Nebuchadnezzar said, that's exactly what I want you to do. He said, see, I don't trust you guys. You guys have been telling me some things lately, and I'm not sure I can trust you. So this time, you're going to tell me what the dream was, and then you're going to interpret it. And they said, no, no human being can do that. He said, well, you better figure out a way, because if it doesn't happen, I'm going to have you all executed, and I'm going to bulldoze your homes. And they said, Nebuchadnezzar, oh, great king, may you live forever. You've fallen off your rocker. This isn't going to work. You're going to have to come up with another option. And he said, there is no other option. And Nebuchadnezzar ordered the execution of all the wise men in Babylon. How's that for a politician? <laughs> I don't like the advice I'm getting, so I'm having everybody who's smart killed. <laughs> That's what Nebuchadnezzar decided. Of course, um, he sends this order out. And so his, his officers go out to collect all the people that are part of this class of wise men. And eventually somebody ends up at Daniel's door, knocks on the door and says, Daniel, you need to come with me. I'm supposed to execute you. Daniel says, pardon me? You need to come with me. I'm supposed to execute you. Daniel has the situation explained to him. And this is where we're going to kind of pause for a moment because when the officer explains the situation, what does Daniel do? Instead of flying off at the handle, Daniel very calmly asks for an explanation. I'm going to read to you verses 14 and 15 here. It says, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. We've seen that before, haven't we? He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh 
decree. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this. As I've said, we've seen this before. Daniel, remember back in chapter one, he was polite when he spoke to the chief of staff about having the menu changed. He was humble when he asked the attendant to bring him vegetables instead of meat from the king's table. And now when he is faced with an immediate, with a clear and present danger, we would call it a threat to his life, he once again responds with self-control and with grace. And rather than opening a dispute, he simply asks the question, why? Because righteousness seeks to understand rather than fight. I want to say that again. Righteousness seeks to understand rather than fight. There are a lot of things going around in the world around us that we would point to as symptoms of spiritual ruin. And as a follower of Jesus, I am absolutely very deeply, deeply concerned about many of the emperor's policies. And I'm not just talking about politics. I'm talking about the world in general around us, the attitudes of our culture. I'm concerned about the ungodly decisions that our world has made about things like the sanctity of human life, things like ethics in sexual identity, the values we have in our public education system. We could go on and on in the list. There are a lot of things about this world that I just don't like. And no, I'm not suggesting that all we need to do about these things is sit down and talk a little bit more and hold hands and sing kubaya and then everything's going to be okay. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think the church can take its cue from Daniel and engage in a conversation before we engage in an argument. Conversations help us understand. I want to point to Jesus in this, and maybe you haven't thought about it this way before I actually took the time this week and did it. I looked through the Gospels and made a note of how many times Jesus, the Son of God, asks the question, why? Isn't that amazing? The all-knowing Son of God, Jesus, God in flesh, went around the world and look at how many times he approached people and just said, well, tell me about that. Why? Help me understand. To the crowds on the mountainside, Jesus said, why do you worry? To the disciples in the midst of the storm, he said, why are you afraid? To the religious leaders, he said, why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? To to Peter, whose mouth was still full of the Sea of Galilee, he said, why did you doubt me? To the rich young ruler, he said, why are you asking me about what's good? To the onlookers in in Bethany when he was anointed prior to his crucifixion, he said, why are you criticizing this woman for doing a good thing? Time and time again, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus asked the question, why? Shouldn't we do the same? Daniel said, why? Why did the king issue such a harsh degree? See, righteous lives lived in kingdoms of ruin ask more questions than you might think. Righteous lives listen for insight and they pursue discernment. Righteous lives seek to understand. And that's what Daniel did. So the officer explains the situation to Daniel. And Daniel says, could I just talk to the king? And Daniel, because he has favor with the people around him, he gets gets that permission. He goes in and he talks to the king and he says to the king, could you give me 24 hours here? Just give me some time to work on this. I didn't even know what was going on. Give me 24 hours. And the king says, you got 24 hours. 
And so that night, Daniel goes home and he explains the situation to his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let me read to you what they do. I'm reading now from verse 17. It says, then Daniel urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Righteous lives know that prayer reveals God's heart. That's what Daniel wanted. It's his impulse. We need to go to pray and I need to call my boys because we're going to pray together. Prayer reveals God's heart. As we read through the entirety of Daniel's story, we're going to go all the way through his life story in the coming weeks and months. And there is going to be no escaping the significance of prayer in his life. Amen. For a righteous person in a kingdom of ruin, Prayer is essential. It's the oxygen that sustains life itself. But many of us struggle. We struggle in this area. And I think part of the reason we struggle is that we have lost sight of real purpose in prayer. In our culture, and I'm not talking about the broader culture of the world we live in. I'm talking about in Christian culture. In our churches, the way we talk about prayer, I think we're oftentimes missing the point. We talk about prayer as as the means by which we make our requests known to God. Think of it this way. We use words to tell God what we want, and we expect that he's going to use actions to respond to us. We use words to tell God what we want, and he uses actions to respond to us. We either get what we want or we don't according, we sometimes say, to whatever his will was in the first place. And if that's your your model of prayer, if that's your idea of prayer, then then why why pray? Why pray? I mean, I think a lot of us have have asked that question. Well, if God's going to do what God was going to do anyhow, why pray? I read in my grocery list, and then I sit and wait, and he does whatever he was going to do anyhow. Why pray? That is a fractured understanding of how prayer works. Bringing requests before God is certainly an important aspect of prayer, but limiting our prayer life to that or doing it in the framework that I just described is a poor counterfeit for what prayer is really supposed to be. And so just one way to stir the pot here. What if instead of limiting prayer to an exercise where we ask with words and then wait for God to answer with actions, what if we flipped the script? What if instead of praying only with words, we prayed with our actions? And what if instead of expecting God to answer with action, we started expecting God to respond with words? Because that's essentially what happens here in this story. That's what Daniel and his friends did. Daniel used action. He sought an audience with the king. He asked for more time to work. He enlisted the help of his friends, and they all prayed together. You read the story, and you get the sense that they prayed late into the night. The Bible says that they explicitly asked God to tell them the secret. That's the words that the Bible uses. They didn't ask God to do something with the king, change the circumstance, do the. They said, God, speak to us. Speak to us. And then at some point in the middle of the night, God did exactly that. God spoke. He didn't do anything, He didn't change anything. He just spoke. He answered their prayer request by speaking to Daniel in a vision. Later on, when explaining this circumstance to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel has to tell him the story of what happened. There's this line, it's in verse 28 of chapter 2. Daniel tells 
Nebuchadnezzar, there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. It's one of my favorite lines from the entire book. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Church, if you're trying to live a righteous life in the midst of a ruinous earthly kingdom, I want to challenge you to remember that the God we serve is a God who reveals secrets. The mysteries that go unseen by the wisest in this world are revealed to the righteous people of God. And here's what that means for you. You might not know what the next step you need to take is, but there is a God in heaven that reveals mysteries. You might not have any idea how to endure the hardships that you're facing right now, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. You might not know what to say to the people who confront you with evil, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And prayer, active, enduring prayer, is the only way that those mysteries are going to be revealed. That's what happened to Daniel. So Daniel goes back to Nebuchadnezzar with the dream and the interpretation. I'm actually not going to take the time to tell you the dream today. I'm kind of like the wise men in Babylon. I'm not going to tell you what the dream was. (laughs) I'm going to leave it for you. If you want to go back and read the story, Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 29, you can see what the dream was. Or you could just watch the VeggieTale version of it and see it with asparagus. But Daniel explains the dream and he explains it to Nebuchadnezzar. And in essence, it's a dream about kingdoms. It's a dream about Nebuchadnezzar's kingdoms and the kingdoms that will come and go after his. And then it's a dream that says, but one day God is going to establish a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And Daniel affirms, I haven't been able to figure this out because of my own ability. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. God knew what was going on and he just shared it with me. And so God gets the glory. And Nebuchadnezzar is so impressed by all of that. I find this funny. He, he like sleeps on the part where his kingdom is going to be destroyed. That doesn't seem to bother him. He's so impressed by the whole situation that he actually bows down and worships Daniel. And he proclaims that Daniel's God is the greatest God of all of the gods. Verse 48 says, then the king placed Daniel in a high position. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Read on, you'll see that Daniel got jobs for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well. So what started off as a very, very bad day at work ends up as a very, very good day at work. Everybody got big promotions. At the beginning of the day, we were going to kill them all. But by the end of the day, they got promotions to management level positions. That's a good day at work, isn't it? But let's not just tell the story about going from a bad day at work to a good day at work. Let's not forget the context here. Daniel is made the chief administrator of the province, the capital province of the empire, the province of Babylon. Daniel's not Babylonian. (laughs) He's not a a nobleman from Babylon. He's not an upwardly mobile, young, up-and-comer politician from the empire. Daniel's a Jew from Jerusalem who has been taken prisoner and led as a captive to the center of the evil empire. His homeland is in ruin. And in a few years, the Babylonians are going to completely destroy Jerusalem. And they're going to take many thousands more people captive. And they're going to take those people in exile back to Babylon. And when those Jews arrive in Babylon, they are going to be amazed 
to find out that the ruler of the capital province of the evil empire isn't some government bureaucrat that they need to fear, but a godly, righteous man from their very own homeland. Isn't that amazing? Now, Babylon is going to continue to be an evil empire. At this point in history, it's going to be the evil empire. But I can't help thinking that it won't be quite as evil as it otherwise would have been. Why? Because a righteous man and his three friends have inexplicably come to positions of great influence in a place of spiritual ruin. And how did they do it? This to me is the story. This is what I want you to grab from this point in the story. How did they do it? Because they never once took up arms. They never once fought against the empire. They never argued. They never battled. They never clashed. They never disputed. But somehow they still managed to, this is the key word, disrupt. They still managed to disrupt the evil process of ruin. And that's what righteousness does. You thought righteousness just means doing the right thing. You thought righteousness just means being a goody two-shoes, following all the rules, checking off all ten of the commandments, doing all the nice things and not getting your nose dirty or getting into trouble. I think righteousness means more than that. I think righteousness is a disruption to the evil process of ruin. Righteousness is a disruption to the process of ruin. Yes. One of my favorite local spots to go fishing is on this little stretch of the, the west branch of the DuPage River. It flows through one of the forest preserves in Naperville. And at this particular location, the river takes kind of a sharp bend and goes under a bridge. And I've found that in so doing, it's kind of cut out a deeper hole under the bridge. And the smallmouth bass like to sit in that hole. And I like to call them up for a game of tug of war. <laughs> I like that spot. In my fishing spot, a few yards away, well, not even a few yards, a few feet away from the riverbank, there's a tree. It's not a particularly big tree. I'd describe it as kind of an adolescent tree. Its trunk is no thicker than my arm or leg. Its branches are at about eye level. And there it sits by the side of the river. When I see it, it reminds me of Psalm the psalm that, that talks about a tree planted by, by, by rich waters, right? Psalm chapter one, a righteous man is like a tree planted by, by the waters. But it reminds me of a righteous man for a different reason than that, actually. As I said, it's, it's a few feet away from the river's bank, but in the spring when the rains come, the river often overflows its bank. And a couple of years ago, we had one of those springs where it rained and rained and rained and rained. Some of you remember the spring I'm talking about because you were busy in your basements. That particular spring, the riverbank was way over its, its usual boundaries and it actually came up over that tree and quite a ways up on that tree. And the reason I know that is because a few days after the waters subsided, I went fishing and I came down by my tree and I discovered that at some point when the river was swollen, and can you imagine the power of that swollen rushing river making its way around that tight bend? It takes everything with it. All of the, all of the tree branches, all of the uh, just loose anything comes in that torrent of rushing waters. I came a few days after the waters had subsided and discovered that at some point, 
in the storms and in the flooding and in the rain, uh, a tree branch that had kind of a Y or a V in it had come down river and stuck itself right on the trunk of that tree. And then once it was stuck there, the next branch came and the next bush came and the next bit of debris came and the next log came and they piled upon each other as tall as I am. And now the waters had subsided, but this tree now stood several feet away from the bank with a wall of debris plastered to it, as tall as I am and twice as wide. And I thought, now there's a metaphor. That tree, skinny as it is, small and insignificant as you might think of it, in contrast to the great forest around it. That tree, merely by standing where it was planted, became a disruption to the flow around it. And that disruption grew and grew and grew. I want you to picture, if you can, the river, the, the rushing waters of the river coming around that bend, and each piece of debris that got caught in there disrupted the flow of the river even more and more and more. Around my tree, there's rocks. And many of those rocks washed away just right around that tree. Why? Because as the water collided with the disruption, it was forced to move another way. It was forced to go in a different direction. That tree was a disruption to the process of the river's flow. I looked at that tree and it reminded me of the fact that it's not the only disruption to that river. Most of the other disruptions you can't see with your eyes, but over the times, the years of fishing that little spot, I've learned that under the surface, there's other trees that have laid down. There's big boulders in a few places that just disrupt the current ever so slightly to our eyes. But under the surface, they're having a huge impact on where that river goes and how it moves. And you know why I know that? Because those are the spots where the big fish live. <laughs> they like to hide out behind that boulder that disrupts the flow of the river. Stay out of the current and just watch for another fish, or if I'm lucky enough, a lure to go by. They like to lay under those, those fallen trunks where the current isn't so heavy, where the flow of the water has been disrupted. They like to hide under the edge of the banks where the banks have been cut away and the flow of the river is disrupted because where there's a disruption in the flow, that's where life is. That's where life is. And church, I think that's like a righteous man living in the midst of ruin. Not picking up arms and doing battle against the evil empire, but just standing being planted and flourishing and becoming a disruption to the process of ruin. You have no idea how big of an impact you have on the world around you. That tree probably had no idea. Can we give the tree a mind and a voice? What do you think it thought when it saw the floodwaters coming? Oh no! That's what I think when I see floodwaters coming. Oh no! But God said, just watch what I'm going to do. Just watch what I'm going to disrupt through your faithfulness. If you're a Christian, you probably identify with Daniel. 
you probably have the sense that the kingdom you live in is not the kingdom that you were designed for. You probably understand what it is to look at the world around you and and feel overwhelmed by the specter of, of ruin and evil. And maybe there are days when you wonder how you're supposed to stand up to it. Maybe there are days when you feel like that tree and you're just watching the floodwaters rise and rise. My ankles are wet now. Now it's my knees. Now it's my waist and pretty soon my belly button's gonna be wet too. How will we overcome? How will we be victorious? I think Daniel's example from this story says, live your life. Be righteous in ruin. You may be surprised to find out that it doesn't actually take a great warrior to win great victories. It takes faithful men and women, boys and girls who are willing to live their lives as a disruption to evil. I told you the testimony of what our teens are doing over at Downers Grove North High School. If you've followed national news in the last couple of years, you've heard stories about Downers Grove North High School and, and some of the things that are going on with the curricular decisions that are being made there, things that boggle my mind. I'm gonna put them in the category of evil. Aren't you glad there's a disruption? Aren't you glad that evil can't go where it wants to go? Aren't you glad that evil can't have its way? Aren't you glad that the victory belongs to God and to his people? Aren't you glad that in the strength of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to stand in righteousness? When the enemy comes in like a flood, right? We have the strength and in God's power, we have the ability to stand in righteousness. (laughs) You may not be happy that you're living your life in the midst of so much evil. It's not the life I would have chosen if I was picking it off of the menu. But if we live our lives righteously, I guarantee you that evil itself is going to be far more frustrated by us than we are of it. And that's what righteousness looks like. Church, I want to close with a time of prayer today. Because I want you to hear the Lord encourage you today. We talked about prayer earlier. We talked about, you know, we're going to to be people of action. It doesn't mean I'm suggesting that we're not going to spend time in classical prayer. Of course we're going to do that. But God, the things that we say to you in our prayer time, we want to live them out in the reality of our lives. That's what righteousness looks like. And we thank you that you are a miracle-working God, that in fact you do respond with action. Of course you do. We see you move in response to your people's prayers all the time. But Lord, help us to remember to listen as well. Because sometimes it's not a great work of your arm that we need. It's a whisper from your mouth that we wait for. You are the God in heaven who reveals mysteries. We thank you for that today. Church, I want to ask you in just this moment, I'm going to zoom in on that earlier point because I feel like that hit home for some of us. As we're continued in a posture and an attitude of prayer, I'd like to invite you to just raise a hand today if... 
if that's a particular request you have of God, is there a mystery in your life and you need a word from the Lord today? You have wrestled, you have worried, you have wondered, but today you're ready to say, God, I just need, I need you to speak into my life. I need you to reveal a mystery. If that's you today, would you just put up your hand so that I know to be praying for you? Thank you for those hands. Thank you for those hands. Leave them up for just a moment. I believe that's, a, that's just a posture of faith right now. I want to encourage you to step out in that. Holy Spirit, behold your people. Behold your people. You can put your hands down if you like. Behold your people who labor in prayer, who labor in righteousness and in faithfulness and say, God, we believe that you have the answer. Attune our ears to your spirit today. Help us to hear what you are saying because you are the one who reveals mysteries. Forgive us, Lord, for seeking and searching in this place and that, for, for wandering around, for going to the wisest in this world. The wisest in Daniel's world weren't even willing to try to figure it out. They didn't even know how to start. But there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Lord, I see a church that is planted like a tree by a stream of water. There is a rushing torrent of evil in this world. God, you have secured us with roots in your word that we would stand in righteousness. We're not here to pick fights that aren't ours. We're not here to howl at the moonlight or scream into the darkness. But we are here to stand as a disruption to the process of evil. Would you cleanse us and consecrate us for that purpose, we ask. Lord, I pray for strength for these people today. I pray for strength. I pray for an encouragement, a spirit of encouragement over us. I pray, Lord, that your words would be always a firm foundation in our lives. And I pray that you would do it for your kingdom glory. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.